why can't we say that these oceans also have an economic value? If you look at the fish stocks within them, the carbon sequestration value that they have, um, the tourism value associated with it, the biodiversity value of, of um, various ecosystems in there, and the services that they provide, there can be an economic value attached to that. Hello and welcome to the Brentas Foundation podcast, where we throw light on some of the African continent's biggest and most pressing issues and leverage best practice, not just on what to do, but how to do it. I'm your host, Marie Noel Ngokulo, and it's a pleasure to share in this moment with you. If you're new here, welcome. It's nice to have you here. If you're a regular, hey, how's it going? So this is the podcast where I share a lot of the super interesting conversations I have with really cool people. I'm a firm believer in sharing ideas that shape and challenge the world as we know it. My hope is that these conversations where you get to be a fly on the wall, start further and deeper conversations wherever you are and lead to the exploring of actions and ideas that actually work and make a difference. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. Again, I'm Marie Noel and you're listening to the Brentas Foundation podcast. On today's episode, I have with me Eric Vandra. Eric is the CEO of Oceans Finance Company, an organization that works with governments, local communities, and other custodians of ocean assets to develop financing solutions that create free cash to protect identified vulnerable marine ecosystems and for the sustainable development of the blue economy. In case you haven't figured it out already, today we are talking about oceans, but from an angle I bet you have never quite engaged before. Ocean finance, yes, monetizing marine assets. Uh, This is especially helpful in a time when national balance sheets are increasingly constrained and debt uh, sort of threatens uh, the financial stability and sovereignty in some cases of many countries in Africa as in other places as well. So by leveraging the ocean and marine assets, governments can gain access to much needed capital and also protect Nemo, Dory and entire squad. Um, So enough of me, let's let Eric do the talking. Eric, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you doing? I am very well, thank you. So it's so great to have you here today. Like first off, you were recently at COP26. How was that? It was um, whirlwind, hey Marino. Well, it was <laughs> <laughs> it was a lastminute.com type of thing to go. Oh really? Um, but in the end, it, I'm very glad that I did go. Yeah, what what were some of your biggest takeaways from that? Um, I would say probably that there's still a lot of distrust from certain parts of um, the general population in the system and the process. Hmm. I think uh, everywhere you went, you saw protesters and and people actually asking for more to be done or something different to be done. Yeah. But I think then um, the other side of the coin as well was I think there was also a lot of really good commitments made by really key players not just governments but also large corporates and the like so mm-hmm. hopefully 
the two sides are moving closer to each other. Closer together, yeah, we hope so. Um, so Eric, I'm going to narrow down a bit and then after we're sort of broadening the conversation, but we met during a presentation on ocean finance and I found that so intriguing because first of all, I'd never heard of it, um, nor even considered it really. So I was just like, this is like mind blowing. Can you tell us a little bit more about the concept of ocean finance and why it's an option um, when it comes to sourcing capital today? Uh, absolutely, gladly. Um, so let me maybe start by reading a little note on a concept mm. called natural capital. Now, I know probably a lot of people know what natural capital is, but there are a lot of people who don't. And I mm. think this will probably frame things very nicely for what we're talking about. Yeah. So uh, this is a quote of uh, Natural Capital Forum that just explains the concept of natural capital. Um, natural capital can be defined as the world's stocks of natural assets, which include geology, soil, air, water, and all living things. Mm. It is from this natural capital that humans derive a wide range of services, often called ecosystem services, which makes human life possible. The most obvious ecosystem services include food, the water, plant materials used for fuel, building materials, and medicines. And there are also many less visible ecosystem services, such as the climate regulation uh, and natural flood defenses provided by forests, the billions of tons of carbon stored by peatlands, or the pollination of crops by insects. Mm. Even less visible are cultural ecosystem services, such as the um, inspiration taken from wildlife and the natural environment. Mm. Poorly managed natural capital um, becomes not only an ecological liability, but a social and economic liability too. Working against nature by overexploiting natural capital can be catastrophic, not just in terms of biodiversity loss, but also catastrophic for humans as ecosystems, um, uh, ecosystem productivity and resilience um, decline over time, and some regions become more prone to extreme events such as floods and droughts. Ultimately, this makes it more difficult for human communities to sustain themselves, particularly in already stressed ecosystems, potentially leading to starvation, conflict over resource scarcity and displacement of populations. Mm. So I think with, with that in mind, um, let me maybe then explain the concept of, of ocean finance and what that is about. And so um, ocean finance, you would say, is a sort of subset of natural capital. Is that the angle we're going with? Spot on. Yeah. Yes. So if you see the oceans as one part of the ecosystems that yeah. you could take a look at. Mm -hmm. Um, so then, with with that natural capital type of framework in mind, then let's quickly think about some of the concepts then behind it that has led to this uh, initiative called Oceans Finance and the ultimate creation of something called Oceans Finance Company, which mm -hmm. then provides this, um, but also broader natural capital yeah. type of funding as well. But let's use Oceans as an example for, for a moment then. Mm -hmm. um, so some of the things that we've seen, particularly across Africa, um, other emerging country and markets as well, but particularly across um, Africa, yeah. is a, a few things. Um, one is that we see that um, debt service costs of countries are going through the roof. Mm. Um, and, and even before the pandemic, the cost yeah. of that was going completely the wrong way. Yeah. Um, then the other thing that we saw was as a result of of not just climate change, but a whole bunch of other things as well, but climate change in particular, mm. um, the balance of trade payments of countries were also going out of whack. Mm. Um, you know, as a result of droughts and even floods, um, food produ production um, had to be substituted with imports. 
So suddenly you would have countries previously being able to provide themselves with food now having to rely on, on imports. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you would also see, uh, again, as a result of both floods and droughts, um, pressure on water infrastructure. On the, on the drought side, you would see things like um, bulk water supply needing to be improved. And then on the flooding side, you would see increased pressure on, on water treatment facilities. Mm. Um, so all of those things added on to burden on to governments yeah. who already have strained budgets. Um, and now in light of COVID, that's actually been exacerbated even more because okay. suddenly government receipts have gone down mm-hmm. um, because a lot of African countries rely on tourism and, and other types of, of foreign income that's now dried up. Um, at the same time, the social burden costs have gone up as well because you mm-hmm. have a lot more people actually relying on, on um, governments for, for support. Um, and then at the same time, you've got climate change now on top of that that adds yeah. another burden to it. So with that in mind, then we, we took a look and said, well, what are some of the assets that um, Africa has that hasn't necessarily been monetized and that could be used to address all of these issues that I've now spoken about, debt deficits, uh, or debt costs going through budget deficits, increasing additional costs associated with climate change and the like. And oceans have always been there. And if we go back to the thought about the ecosystem services, we've often relied on oceans for those ecosystem services, but haven't been treating them that well in the process. So things like water supply, waste management and the likes. Um, but at the same time, they hold and an enormous amount of, apart from economic and social value, or they also um, have environmental value uh, and, and a lot of economic value, particularly yeah. for governments and people who live within those coastal regions. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, how do you monetize that? Mm-hmm. Now, if it was any other resource like oil or gold or something else, it would be very simple. You know, mm-hmm. send somebody in, they do a survey, they tell you it's worth this much. Somebody pays you to come and um, come a- a- and exploit that resource, and the government and people benefit from it through royalties and jobs and yeah. everything else as well. But in the process, obviously, there's a bit of destruction to habitat. <laughs> yeah. Um, if we then look at that same principle in terms of oceans, we said, why can't we apply the same principle? Why can't we say? that these oceans also have an economic value. If you look at the fish stocks within them, the carbon sequestration value that they have, um, the tourism value associated with it, the biodiversity value of of, um, various ecosystems in there and the services that they provide, there can be an economic value attached to those. Yeah. Um, And the minute that you can attach an economic value to something, you can then start doing some very innovative things from Mm. a financing perspective. Yeah, no, definitely. And I find that to be particularly like, it's so intriguing, really, to me. And it's really exciting to see that this is one of the things that are being, you know, explored. Um, I'm curious to hear where has this been leveraged, like so far in the work that you're doing? um, And has it worked? So um, it has been done in the past for probably for, I'd say, the last 40 years almost, um, mm. the concept of utilizing natural assets for some form of economic value yeah. has been done. Um, has it been done at scale um, on, in the oceans? Of late, yes. Previously, not really. 
Mm. Um, some of the first ones that we saw were in Seychelles, where the Seychelles did something called the debt for, for nature swap, mm. where they actually raised some um, capital on the back of, yeah. of refinancing um, some existing government debt that was then utilized to, to improve ocean management. Um, mm. It was a relatively small transaction, um, but still proved that the concept works. Yes. Then more recently in Benin, there was, um, uh, uh, sorry, in Belize, there was a much larger transaction. Mm. And again, that now shows that it can be scaled up. Mm. Um, currently, we are working on a similar transaction in, in Ecuador. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I was in COP. Um, because at COP, you would have seen there was an announcement made where the Galapagos Marine Reserve yeah. um, was going to be expanded. And very happy to say that um, on Monday, uh, the president of Ecuador, President Lasso, actually signed uh, the decree for the mm. expansion of the Galapagos Marine Reserve. Yeah, and we are now working with the government of Ecuador to see how we can leverage the value of that expansion uh, yeah. from a socioeconomic perspective. perspective. That's amazing. So I think... I imagine this type of conversation is one you've had with, you know, a lot of different countries. Like we, if you think all around the world, there are so many countries that have, you know, access, I guess, to the ocean, ocean line, marine assets. And I'm just wondering, what's that conversation like? What have you found, you know, sort of piques people's interest? Um, and when is the conversation also difficult in some of these settings? We've had a lot of conversations. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of these grey hairs come from some of those conversations. <laughs> um, if I go back to my first statement that I made about COP, I think one of the things is a bit of a trust deficit. Um, mm. when, whenever there's something new or yeah. whenever there's a private party and a public party um, that has a conversation, very often there's a bit of distrust. Um, I think particularly within African governments because in the past, a lot of governments have been exploited by private enterprises. Right. So you can understand where the distrust comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, where some of the good traction has come from is from countries who understand, one, the value of what their natural resources mean to them and mm-hmm. these natural um, capital assets mean to the country yeah. and, and its people. Um, unfortunately, a, a lot of the good traction has also come from countries who are increasingly under pressure around servicing their national debt. Mm. Um, and then thirdly would be countries that have got existing conservation items within their national budgets. Mm. When we see those three items, in that's usually a good conversation with a country because there's an economic reason to do this. There's an environmental reason to do this, and there's a social reason to do this as well. Mm -hmm. Then those combinations work really well. Mm, I see. I wonder if the, the, not necessarily the turning point, but I guess one of the more interesting things would be trying to find, define, or amplify the political reason to do this um, as well in some places. So it would be interesting to see um, how that develops, if that develops. Um, it looks like from COP26, you know, as you mentioned, some of these conversations are being had. People made some commitments. So we hope that closer and closer we get to uh, getting the people that need to make some of these decisions to actually make them because it's in their best interest to do so um, politically as well. Um, But one other question I wanted to ask is if we're talking about, you know, like ocean sort of finance, like 
what is the access to capital that's available? Like, is there some sort of amount as to, like, when we quantify it, what does this look like? What are some of the options out there? Oh, great question. So um, that's exactly the reason why Ocean Finance Company was established. Mm. Um, and sorry, I'm going to give you a long answer again, but it, it, <laughs> uh, I'll try and hone in what you asked. Um, why Ocean Finance Company was established was there's no limit really in terms of the amount of capital that is sitting out there. Mm. Um, what there is, is there's uh, and sorry, and then the other hand, there's also no limit really to the areas where that capital can be applied to. Mm. What the limiting factor really has been to date is something that sits in the middle that can create the value on the one side that the sources of capital would like to see, and I'll expand on the sources now. Yeah. And and also can hand on heart stand up and say we have implemented and created that impact and value that you want to see. But on the other hand, also has the ability to develop finance instruments um, that can cater to the various sources of capital. So let me let me quickly in very broad strokes explain to the types of capital that we see. Um, by far the largest pool of capital would be your institutional investors that are interested in financial returns with an impact benefit. Um, and that would typically be your large um, pension funds and the like that have a responsibility to make sure that they've got sufficient capital to make sure that when pensioners retire, they can make sure there is sufficient funding for them. But at the same time, also has a social responsibility because of where the money comes from to make sure that it gets supplied to the right things. Right. So for those type of investors, you need to then create instruments that can give them certain returns over a long period of time that match the liabilities in terms of payouts, but still deliver the impacts. And that's mm -hmm. that's a vast sum. Um, the last numbers um, that Bloomberg looked at, that sits in the order of almost $45 trillion. So that's not a small amount. Then the second pool of capital that we see um, is impact-focused capital that would still require a bit of a financial return. And let me maybe explain that. So this would typically be um, development finance institutions, other impact-focused uh, agencies and organizations that would like to see their money being deployed but leveraging other capital and also be able to recycle it so that it grows. And that's also a very, very big pool of capital, way in excess of probably tens of trillions of dollars as well. Oh, wow. And then the, um, and then um, probably within that grouping as well, you would sit with some philanthropic capital um, as mm -hmm. well as, uh, as certain types of um, equity instruments and the like. Yeah. And then at the very last general pool would be donor capital that is purely looking at creating momentum behind something. That's a much smaller pool of capital. And in the past, I think a lot of these initiatives purely focused on the donor and grant type of capital yeah. and therefore couldn't really do things at scale. Mm. By using something like um, the oceans, um, big scale things like national debt, um, which in some countries run in the order of billions of dollars, yeah. you're able then to create on the one hand impact at scale, but also finance instruments at scale that can then attract all of these different investors. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I hope that answered your question. 
No, certainly. I mean, I hearing you say like forty-five trillion dollars and upwards, I was like, that like that is huge. Um, and it also makes you wonder why you know this isn't something we hear about like a lot. You know, especially on the African continent, we have a lot of people on the coastline that also having issues, especially with you know debt servicing, which is almost like a noose around their necks. And it's like there are options that we could explore, and it just makes you wonder what it would take. Um, to entertain um, and to explore conversations like this and different ways to reduce the burden um, on government, but even on the people as well when some of these things get passed on. Um, so thank you very much for sharing about that. Now, I think you you mentioned that, you know, you sort of broadened your work into beyond sort of the ocean economy into like climate change as well. And you went to COP26, had some of these conversations. Can you help? And I know the topic is one that's not unfamiliar to many, um, but there are obviously concerns about the urgency with which we talk about and address, you know, issues around climate change. Can you help paint a picture or one of many pictures of the impact of you know climate change um, on the economic well-being of African countries for instance and why we need to press the issue as hard and fast as possible. Absolutely and I think that goes probably goes back to some of the um, comments that I made initially around natural capital and the impact that we have on them and how climate change actually impacts on those as well. So Let's let's think then about some of the issues, particularly facing drought-stricken African countries. Mm -hmm. Let's for a moment leave flood floods out of it for a moment, um, and particularly landlocked countries. If you think about it, if you if you're a country sitting on the oceans and you're facing mm -hmm. drought, you potentially have the option of desalination that could benefit the drought side of things, but obviously it comes at a cost. Yeah. Inland countries don't often have those type of options. So what is it that that we see? Um, the first thing that everybody always talks about is is water, obviously. So um, you've got to look at ways of of augmenting the water supply of those countries. And and sometimes it also just involves fixing existing systems. So you might not need to provide new water. You can just make sure that the existing water reaches where it needs to go and is um, not leaking into disused pipes or whatever the case might be. Um, and at the same time, where it is used, it needs to be used um, in the most efficient manner as well. And in most countries, that water gets used um, mainly predominantly by agriculture and then by industry. And then obviously households and everything else follows as well. So if you can take a look at how you can manage those in light of climate change, that's where you often see a lot of this impact. Um, if I then take it back to the financing type mechanisms and how can you bring this all together, let's use an example of an unnamed landlocked African country um, that's sitting with uh, an enormous amount of debt owned to foreign entities. Uh -huh. <laughs> and at the same time is also facing increasing drought um, and um, is also facing other impacts due to climate change, like biodiversity loss and the likes, mm. and cover that with COVID. <laughs> yeah. So perfect storm, no pun mm -hmm. intended. Yeah. So what does that mean for them then? Um, on the one hand, um, tourism receipts are down. This country was relying on tourism. It can't sustain itself from a food security perspective anymore. It needs to start importing food. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, there's um, job losses 
as a result of both of those because typically tourism and agriculture would be the largest um, employers in those sectors um, and that adds additional burden onto the state into something like a debt for climate swap where we could take a look and say to landlocked country unnamed um, let's take a look at these billions of dollars that you owe people can we find a way to restructure and refinance this in a way that will solve for a few things for you one is that it gives you breathing space just in terms of a bit of breathing space that you know you've got time to to repay over a longer period of time a lower amounts and all the type of things with regards to the money that you owe to international entities at the same time let's use some of that breathing space that you now have to fund some of the things that sits within your existing budget in any case Things like improving your water infrastructure, uh, making sure that you're looking at climate smart agriculture, um, taking a look at is there a way of, of um, improving the biodiversity um, aspects of the country through what we are busy doing to start encouraging tourism and the likes again. And then thirdly would be to say, and now let's go and take a look at can we also improve um, either the extent of conservation that's happening in the country from, from what you're doing on the ground or where you're doing it on the ground. Because what we've seen in the past is that type of conservation, either improving what you're doing or where you're doing it, leads to benefits on the former. Because suddenly you, you get better climate smart agriculture, better conservation, better biodiversity, increased jobs, um, even the revenues from carbon credits, um, which are making a bit of a comeback, that was one good thing from COP as well. Carbon credits seem to be back on the table again. Um, those type of things suddenly start making a lot of sense for countries. No, that's that's a really good point. And I actually appreciate the example quite well, because in the beginning, I did hear you talk about natural capital and sort of the different assets. But it's just like I was like, I was so fascinated with ocean's economy. I was like those who have an ocean, like the ocean on their hand, you know, sort of. But it's like the biodiversity. There are so many other things that could be leveraged um, in some of these conversations. So that's very helpful. And yes, we will leave that um, landlocked country unnamed for all intents and purposes. <laughs> uh, so, Eric, as we close out this chat you know what what do organizations like yours um and those in your ecosystem like require of policy makers and decision makers and how can some of us on you know in organizations like the Brentus foundation agitate or ask uh, for these kinds of options or conversations to be considered or even had in the first place sure um we we only have you got two days left? No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think the first thing is a willingness to listen. Mm. Um, is is probably where it starts. And 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 I'm not saying drop your guard. All I'm saying is, please just just hear us. Yeah. Um. So I think that's where an entity like the Brentus Foundation or even some of our, our um, shareholders, our, our main shareholders is a fund called Climate Investor 2, and the investors in that are a lot of um, European and Scandinavian and Nordic government entities. Mm. So we often rely on them to facilitate yeah. the conversations for us. Um, so, so that would be the first one. Yeah. Then would be to, and we never ask governments to flaunt existing procurement and or other uh, um, um, funding management um, legislation at mm. all. On the contrary, we wanted to be transparent. We yeah. wanted to be 
um, very clear that this is to the benefit of the country. Mm. Um, but what we would like to see is very similar to what was done within the renewable space in certain countries or other infrastructure mm. areas, is maybe a, a dedicated point of contact that can facilitate that process. Because typically what it involves is a conversation with the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Environment, Ministry of Water, Ministry of um, Industry and the likes. So if there could be a single point of contact somewhere that can facilitate that process, that can help a lot. And then I think probably um, the last one that where we where we see it helping a lot is having a trusted advisor sitting across the table from us, and I'm using across um, the table from us on the side of government who can verify that what we are saying is true and just and of value and of benefit. Yeah. Um, because very often just us saying it on our side of the table doesn't really carry that much weight. If somebody sits on the other side of government that can provide an honest, um, unbiased opinion and say, yes, these guys are able to provide you finance at a much cheaper rate than you could as a government raise it on your own or through other uh, um, opportunities. Yeah. Yes, it can be applied to deliver the impact that you um, as government would like to see out of this, which typically mm -hmm. involve jobs, um, social resilience, um, economic diversification and the like while also solving for climate and conservation, that'd be brilliant. Yeah. So maybe I'll I'll pause there. I can carry on forever and a day, but I think that's where <laughs> entities like you could play a really, really good role. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eric. It's been an absolute pleasure having this conversation with you, learning from you, really. I'm really grateful for the time. Um, hopefully the next time you come around, I get to see you um, in person. Uh, but until then, uh, stay well. And yeah, keep on doing the amazing work that you're doing because it's, it's fascinating. And I hope that conversations like this take it further and more people learn more and are interested. No, thank you very much, Noel. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, coffees on me next time. Yes, I'll take that. <laughs> All right, take care, Eric. You too. That brings us to the end of today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did putting it together. I love, love learning new things. Hey, if you enjoyed this chat, you definitely enjoy others that came before it. Check out previous episodes on whichever platform you're tuned into now or visit our website www.thebrenthousefoundation.org for other episodes. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if I could make one last ask of you, please do share this with others. Again, you're listening to Marie Noel on the Brenthous Foundation podcast and it's been a pleasure sharing this time with you. Until next week, stay well.